is on you. Yeah, we bring the things that we have failed in, our worries and our concerns. We bring all those to your cross today. But we also exalt you. We thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you that we come to this place today. We find mercy and grace, strength and hope. That somehow even in your death there is life. As Todd shared this morning, we thank you for having access. <laughs> thank you for inviting us to the throne of grace. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> In two weeks, I will preach what I think it will have been the most hope-filled sermon I have ever preached. I've been working on it for quite some time. I'm very excited about that sermon to come. But today, before we get to that hope-filled sermon, we have to ask ourselves some tough questions, hard questions. And I think that probably we're not big always on asking the tough questions or the things that are uncomfortable for us to think about. I mean, these are those kinds of questions, right? Like, is it possible that I'm the one who's at fault in an argument or a disagreement that we're having? Or a tough question like, is it possible that I've made my agenda and my, my will more important than God's agenda and God's will? Those are questions we don't always like to wrestle with. And there are questions about God and about the Bible that we sometimes struggle with. One of those big questions that we sometimes struggle with, we love the sermons on hope and grace, but we don't always like sermons about judgment or the wrath of God. That really comes out in this book we're about to look at today, because we're going to take a look at the book of Joshua. And the book of Joshua raises and has a lot of questions in it. For example, one of the things that's really disconcerting to a lot of people is why would a God of grace and peace and love allow the kind of destruction of the Canaanites and the Amorites to occur that happens when the Israelites take over the promised land? How can a loving God wipe out every man, woman, child, and animal in a place? That's a tough question, isn't it? doesn't have an easy, nice, neat little answer, and we don't like to think about God in a wrathful kind of way. And yet the book of Joshua forces us to confront the God of judgment, and we see it in full display. In fact, the story we're going to look at today is a story about the very beginning of God's judgment falling on the land of Canaan on the Amorites and the Canaanites. Well, if we're going to understand and if we're going to answer some of these hard questions, it's important for us to go back a little bit. I want to take you back just for a second to the time of Abraham. Remember him? All right, we have the, we have the initial creation. We have the flood with Noah. Then God reaches out to Abraham, calls him to, a new, to become a new people. You know the story. Abraham has a long conversation with God. And in that long conversation with God, God begins to talk to him about the future, things that are going to come. 
There's an interesting thing that happens in Genesis chapter 15. God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this land of Canaan. But for now, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, it's an interesting idea that God is looking into the future, and when he says four generations, we actually know from the rest of the Bible that that generation represents a hundred-year period in this story when he tells them that. Because the Israelites will be enslaved for 400 years. Think about this for a minute. God lets his people be enslaved for 400 years so that the Amorites and the Canaanites will have a chance to repent and to turn from what they're doing. He lets them be beaten and enslaved for 400 years for the good of someone else who's not very good to begin with. If you were to read the passages out of Leviticus chapter 18, you'd see that these people, they did horrible things. There's a reason that God's anger is so fierce towards them. They do awful, awful, awful things. You can read about them, but you probably shouldn't unless you're 16 years old because they're horrible things. But God gave them 400 years to change. He let his people suffer for 400 years so that they could have the chance to get it right. Even though God knew they probably wouldn't. Wow. Hard questions. Is it possible God would let you or me suffer so that he could give someone else the chance to repent? Is it possible he would let us endure hardship for the good of someone else? That's a hard question. I mean, don't we want a health, wealth, and prosperity idea that says everything's always good for me all the time? But that's not the picture that Joshua brings up. He actually paints the picture that sometimes we might suffer for the good of someone else. Tough questions. And that's not the only tough question that that it raises for us, right? That, that God is a God that does that. There are other questions that are raised in this book. One of the questions that, that Joshua has to answer is the question, do I believe God can do what he says he's going to do? Do I believe he'll do that? That's a big question for Joshua. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to the book of Joshua, the first chapter, and just want to read these first seven verses about Joshua's life. After the time of enslavement, God has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've wandered for 40 years in the desert. They've been judged. They've been found wanting. A lot of things have happened, and now it's time to enter the promised land, and Moses dies. And the new leader of the people is Joshua. And the book of Joshua opens as they're about to go out and fulfill and be God's instrument of judgment to take away a land that had been given to people and God was giving it now to the Israelites. And as they begin that quest, he has brought someone into leadership. And now Joshua has to lead this massive and expansive people. And the question that is before Joshua is this question. Do I really believe God's going to keep his promises? This is what God says. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 opens with these words. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, 
who had been Moses' aide. He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready. Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you're, you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river Euphrates to the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. These words that we love that are repeated again in the New Testament, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong, be very courageous, and be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the left or to the right, that you may be successful wherever you go. God has said a lot of things to Joshua. The rest of this book will be a history lesson that says Joshua did believe God's word. We know that because when God said it, he did it. Now there's a question for us. Do I really believe that God knows what is best for me? Do I really believe God's going to keep his promises for me? Do I really believe he's coming back one day? Do I really believe uh, that what he tells me about how I should live my life or what I should do with my income or how I should uh, handle my relationships, do I really believe it's right? Am I going to try and do it God's way or am I going to just do it my own way? You see, Joshua had that same opportunity. He could have led any way he wanted. But he said, you know what? I'm going to follow God's leading and I'm going to be a following leader. And I'm going to do what God wants and let him be the real leader of this people. Do you believe God will keep his promises and do what he says? Joshua had his own sets of questions. As they head into this land of the Amorites and the Canaanites to, do, uh, to be God's instrument of judgment, to take the land from these people, as they head into this space, they approach the massive fortress of Jericho. You know the story well. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, right? The walled city. What you might not know about this place is it was a massive fortress, probably a city unlike any other in the world in its day. If you think about who the neighbors of these Amorites and Canaanites were, you have to be impressed with the fact that they had been able to repel the superpower of Egypt. And Egypt was a superpower at that time. And yet somehow, when things went bad, the armies of Jericho had always had their fortress to fall back into. It was their safe space, and they had endured sieges, they had endured battles, and they had outlasted all enemies. And so they had this massive place. It was a high place. If you went to the plain of Jericho, you couldn't miss the massive city. Like our skyscrapers today, although not as tall as the modern skyscraper, the idea that as you approach a city, you can see those landmarks first is the same thing that would have happened in Jericho. You would have seen the tops of the walls first as you came into the plain. It was a high place for its day. 
massive, foreboding, and formidable. When you saw it, you would think, there's no way. How are we going to do this? There's an interesting moment that happens for Joshua. We read about it in the book of Joshua, the fifth chapter, right before that battle at Jericho takes place. And it happens that, that Joshua and the people see this person, a soldier, standing on the battlefield. Listen to what it says in, the, in this passage. It begins in verse 13. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. The sword was in his hand, and Joshua went up to him, and he asked, Are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And I love the answer that the man gives. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell down, face down to the ground in reverence, and he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's a question that's a good question to ask about. You see, we, we are people who want to know if, if someone's, are you for me or against me? And, and sometimes we, we, are you for a party or, or you a party that's against me? Are you you're for this or are you against it? And we, we live our lives and we make judgments about people that way. But, but the commander of the Lord says, I'm not for you and I'm not for them. <laughs> I really could care less. That's, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here for you and I'm not here for them. You know who I'm here for? I'm here for the Lord. I'm here for the Lord. I will do the Lord's work in the world. Man, I have to ask that question. Have I made my life about a them and us kind of a, a perspective? Or am I here as a person who my perspective and the reason for being is to do what the Lord wants? Not about me. It's not about them. It's about the Lord. Told you, some tough questions to think about. <laughs> some tough things to deal with. And if that wasn't enough, what do we do when God asks us to do something that seems really weird? I mean, there's no getting around this. I, I want you to understand that what happens next in the story of Joshua is, is just plain odd, right? Joshua has been in battle. He had actually been there on, on the day that the sun had stood still for Moses. They had gone out to fight. We read about the, the battle they had had with the Amalekites in Exodus 17. And they go out to the fight, to fight and in the battle, the, the leader of the army is Joshua. And as they fight that fight, as long as Moses' hands are raised up, they win. And if his hands come down, they lose. Remember the story? And people have to hold up the arms of Moses until they finally get the victory. It's an interesting story. But understand that Joshua was like a general. He had been a leader of armies. He knew how to go have a fight and how to prevail on the battlefield. So what God asked him to do is, is odd. It's, it's awkward. Read what it says as we open this part of the text in, in uh, Joshua chapter 6. We read these words, it says, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. 
And no one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with the king and its fighting men. By the way, I love that God used the past tense as if this was something that was already done, like a matter of fact. And yet Joshua is still outside of the walls looking at them, and God's telling him as if this has already happened. <laughs> it's already done. <laughs> this is already a foredrawn conclusion. It's going to happen. This takes a kind of faith on the part of Joshua. I mean, he has, a, the obvious question is, wait a minute, it's done. I still see the wall. I still see the people in there. But you're telling me this is over already. And it was. As soon as God's commander had shown up on that battlefield, the battle was already won for the Lord. Tough questions. So God says to him, this is what you're going to do. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets and ram's horns in front of the ark of the Lord. And the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priest blowing trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout and then the wall of the city will collapse, and the people will go up, every man straight in. Of all the ways to fight, marching in a big circle doesn't seem like the one that's going to give them the victory. Why would God ask them to do this? Tough question. Why march around this huge landmark every day for seven straight days? And why give a shout? God had been in the business of building trust with the Israelites. He's in the business of building trust with you and with me. In Joshua's case, it had happened. Joshua's one of the few people that enters the promised land who actually saw God part the Red Sea. Joshua saw that. Uh, Joshua was one of the few people who had actually been there and had tasted the manna and had eaten the quail that God had provided for them. He, he had done all of those things. He had seen it. Joshua had seen the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. God had been building trust. He had been with Moses on the mountain. He had heard and felt the, the voice of God as it spoke out. He had those things. God had built trust with him. But a whole new generation was moving into the promised land. And they were going to school. <laughs> they were going to school. They were going to have to answer some questions. Will I do whatever God asks me to do, great or small? It's interesting that when God sends them into this land to take it over, God is the one who does the, the heavy lifting. <laughs> He's the one who does the hardest part. And from the very beginning, if they'll accept that, if they'll just do what he asks, God says, I, you're going to be amazed. Now, you're going to join me in it. Why shout? Because that's the part that they were bringing to the equation. <laughs> that's what God asked them to do. 
Just shout. When the time is right, you have two tasks, march and shout. If you're a priest, blow your horn when I tell you to blow it. That's your job. If you do your job, I'll be faithful to do mine. They gave them six days to do their job. Do you trust me? It would have been scary on the first day to walk around that massive city. You know, it was so big at the top that they had room for spectators to line the sides while chariots raced around the rim of the walls of Jericho. It's massive like that. Windows, people shouting at them, all kinds of things probably from up there. They would have seen their soldiers with their bows and arrows aimed at them as they walked around. There were good reasons for the Israelites to be afraid as they walked around Jericho. It wasn't an easy thing God asked them to do in the beginning. It got easier as the week went on. Nothing happened to them the first day. So the second day, they thought, well, maybe nothing happened today. The sixth day, then it was probably really scary again on the seventh day, because that's the day God said it would fall. So they marched around, and then it happened. They had been faithful for one week, and a city that had stood for probably a millennia came crumbling to the ground. A little bit of faithfulness, a little bit of obedience goes a long way. It's a tough question. Am I being faithful? Am I being obedient to God to do what he asks me to do? It's an important question, a question that's worth us considering. Will I do what God asks me to do? I want you to understand something. God's plan for your life is always to your advantage. God's plan for your life is always to your advantage. What God wants for you is ultimately for your good. But that's not always easy. Remember those 400 years of slavery? It was probably pretty tough for them to believe that that was ultimately for their advantage. But it was. And for ours. And for ours. Joshua chapter 6 verse 20 gives us an interesting word if you read it from the right translation. It says, the walls fell down flat. Flat. I love that. This massive landmark, after God has done his thing, is now flattened. The roadblock has become a highway. God levels that place to the ground. I wonder, what high places in my life or your life might need to be flattened by God? What strongholds need to fall? Tough questions. If, like Joshua, you are ready to trust God in every part of your life, then I want you to know you will be able to watch and you will see the power of God displayed. God's power knows no limits. God's power is deeply personal. God lets you participate with him. Now, oftentimes, before there is provision, there must be obedience. And God asks them to obey him, and then God provides. But once God starts a job, God always sees it through to completion. 
God will finish the job that he has begun. And if you were to read the end of the book of Joshua, you come to the end of it in Joshua chapter 21, we read this beautiful thing in verse 45. In verse 45 it says that not one, not a single one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every single one was fulfilled. Isn't that amazing? Not a single one of God's promises failed. We might fail God, and we do. But God does not fail us. As we move towards the Christmas season, we should be reminded of the angel's words from Luke chapter 1, verse 37. No word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. Tough questions. God asks us today, do you believe I keep my promises? Do you trust me? Will you do what I'm asking you to do? I can't answer those questions for you. Those are questions that are personal between you and God. But I encourage you to think about them today. If you're a Christian, you have a lot to think about. You said the words, I accept you as my Savior and as my Lord, my boss, my master. You have something to think about. Am I doing my master's business the way he wants me to do it? If you're not a Christian yet, if you've never accepted Jesus yet, you have an even more poignant question to answer. Do I really believe Jesus is who he said he was and who the Bible says he is? Am I willing to place my trust in him and to follow him, to let him save me from my sins? On Thursday night, a young man, Joshua House, made that decision was baptized and to Christ. Maybe that's a decision that you need to make as well. If you have a decision to make, I encourage you to make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation. Mm-hmm.